The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Computer? I don't know that word. An electronic or mechanical apparatus capable of carrying out repetitious or complex mathematical operations at high speed. Computers are used to control, process, perform, or store. Enough! Let me kill him. He's really beginning to irritate me. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August the 9th. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show, where you can call in at 519-661-3600 if you want to add something to the conversation or discussion today, or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. Morning, Ira. How are you doing in there? Ira's our operator. He's a fellow to be picking up the phone if you call. I'm wet today, Bob. Yeah, it's a wet one out there, isn't it? Uh, Maybe we need some new inventions to keep that rain off us. Uh... Going a little different direction today, not that I'm not sticking to the right, but, uh, you know, part of right is is about technology and science, because technology and freedom and science and freedom very much go hand in hand. In fact, I'm quite convinced that were we not such a highly technological society, that our governments would have bankrupted us a long time ago, because we would never have been able to keep up with the productivity required to pay taxes at a rate of almost 50%. So in that sense, you might almost say technology has been our unwitting uh, enemy in that way, but uh, I don't think you can draw cause and consequence there. The thing that drew, that drew my attention, though, well, maybe I should start this way. You know, when when I was a kid... I used to read a Gold Key comic book called uh, Magnus Robot Fighter. I don't know if you ever saw it. Gold Key Comics always had these great, great covers and that looked more like art gallery paintings, really, while the inside art was a little more cartoony than you might, might find in a DC or Marvel superhero comic books of the time. But Magnus used to fight these evil robots out to destroy humanity, and he had this sort of... Uh, a skill in, uh, I guess you'd call it martial arts, and these robots would fall victim to him because he was a big, tough guy. We've seen what robots can do to us in movies like The Terminator or TV shows like Battlestar Galactica. And, of course, we've seen the other side of the coin with characters like Star Trek's Data, whose positronic neural network gives him self-awareness, but apparently without emotion. And, of course, the Jetsons had a a household-made robot called Rosie, I think was her name. But that's sort of an issue I want to get into today. Can machines think? Can they become sentient? Can they become truly intelligent? We hear a lot about intelligent technology and, uh, and smart machines. And if you think these questions are rather esoteric, well, think again, because welcome to the 21st century. You know, it would be pretty difficult for me to pick a single quantum technological leap out of the 20th century that we could, say, change mankind's way of existence as never before. I mean, from from the very introduction of electricity to, to flush toilets to automobiles to telephones, radios, televisions, aircraft, spacecraft, and of course, computers and the internet. None of these things existed in any previous known recorded history, and many were not even predicted by the best of the science fiction writers. 
Um, the idea of a cell phone or iPod has already surpassed the comic book fantasies of Dick Tracy, who used to have this uh, two-way communicator on his uh, wrist, and everybody thought that was so cool. And then, of course, there's, we thought we might get flying cars and boat cars. I think they had them for a while, but uh, the technology for these things apparently exists, but interestingly enough, there is no consumer demand. So, uh, you know, get ready for the 21st century quantum leaps. And I think we're already approaching a point where I think I can predict, at least with some reliability, one of the next, next great leaps, as big as I think computers and the Internet were, and that is robotics, and specifically robots who kind of look more like humans and act more like humans. Um, you know, there's already been some problems associated with this very issue, and they're, they're being discussed at very high levels, and this might very much surprise you. Um, with that, I draw your attention to an article that I dug up out of The Economist. It was about a year, year ago, actually. Uh, it appeared in June 10th edition, if you happen to have your old issues of The Economist around, and, it, and the title of the article is called, Trust Me, I'm a Robot. And what it talks about is that, uh, you know, the question that faces the emerging robotic industry is, quote, whether new robot-specific safety rules and regulations are needed, and if so, what should they say? Now, you might be surprised. Now, of course, The Economist is a British magazine, so some of these statistics relate to Britain, uh, though not all. But it's, it reported then, in 2005, for example, there were 77 robot-related accidents in Britain alone according to the health and safety executive. And since 1981, people have been crushed, hit on the head, welded, and even had aluminum, molten aluminum, poured on them by robots. And man, that, that's got to be hot. So now, of course, robots have been with us for some time. So I went to the dictionary and looked up a definition of what really we should be considering a robot. And, and it was interesting. They had three sort of distinct definitions, and here they are. The first one is, one, a mechanical man constructed to perform work in the place of human beings. Two, one who works mechanically, an automaton. Now, that would be a person in that case. And uh, it's interesting that in this regard, the uh, dictionary pointed out to the Czechoslovakian word robota, which re actually refers to forced labor, which, of course, uh, kind of raises a labor issue with mechanical labor being regarded as sort of mindless, which is, you know, why robots and automation seem to threaten physical labor. And why I think there won't be really a labor shortage with declining demographics, I think uh, robots might make up a big difference in that area. But the third definition is any mechanism or device that operates automatically or is remotely controlled. Now, the new generation of robots that are emerging, I think, departs from from the definition about remote control. Yes, there are def that's still a correct use of the word to say that a remote control device is a robot. In fact, there's an article in the Free Press just uh, August 6th here, Robot Newest Tool in Treatment of Prostate Cancer. But of course, this isn't a robot like data that just walks into the room and does its own thing. It's controlled by someone. Uh, the fact is that they're at a distance, and that's what makes the definition of robot apply in this case. You know, if you really wanted to call your car a robot, I guess you could, because you are at some distance from the wheels. You don't turn them directly. You give a command, and then there's a series of mechanical and electronic things that occur, and your command is carried out at a chain of events. But, of course, we don't look at cars as robots because they're more in a direct control. But uh, 
you know, to me, the, 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 the new type of robot that we're talking about, and that I will be more focused on today, um, is an automated robot, uh, the, which is similar to remote control device, but only in the sense that the human instructions passed on to it were pre-written and considered at a time prior to the robotic action itself. So, in other words, a command could be issued to a robot, say, in the year 2001, and not acted upon until, hey, as late as 2009 or later if you wanted to. There is, in essence, a gap in time between the instruction being given via a computer or a computer chip and when acted upon. So, needless to say, in addition to the many opportunities and benefits this can offer us, it can also present some problems should any instructions uh, prove to be harmful or destructive, whether that is intentionally or unintentionally. So, you know, the closest thing I think we've come to experiencing this fear was back with the Y2K bug. You remember that thing or at the turn of the millennium, which I think was one of the most misunderstood technological issues of its time. Uh, fundamentally predicated on a false belief that mechanical devices and machines dependent on computer systems would be able to act or not act on their own simply because the digit changes from 99 to 00. Uh, people were afraid that planes would stop flying, telephone telephones would stop working, power outages would occur. You know, but the plain fact is unless a computer has a specific instruction to issue a command to some mechanical device. It just won't happen just because a 9 turns into a 0. In binary, all numbers look the same. The computer doesn't know a 9 from a 0, from a 2, from a 5, from an A, B, C. It's all uh, digital binary code down at the uh, basic level. But nevertheless, I di digress a bit here. Uh, for me, I'm going to take the definition of a robot and extend it a bit to, to what I think in terms of what we're looking at in the future and the really impressive kind of robots that we're going to be seeing. And this is sooner than you think. Just wait till you hear what I have to say. Um, this is what I would say about robots I'd, that I would add to the dictionary definition. First, I would say that it's a physical extension of a computer. That's really what drives the, a robot, regardless. You know, There's always a computer program there, whether it's a RAM chip, a random access memory, or a ROM chip, read-only memory. Um, that's not the point. It's still operating independently from a human being remote control, you know, remotely controlling it, and it's being given instructions from this uh, preset of instructions that were created by a human being. And of course, it implies mobility and action in addition to information processing. I think that's very important. Second, I think a robot could really be very simple, or it could be very complex, and it can take any shape, um, humanoid or otherwise. Many toys already qualify as robots, including actual robot toys. My grandson has one, but it's very mechanically uh, operated. It doesn't operate with a program, per se. It won't fall off the edge of a table, but not because a program's telling it not to. It's because the legs are designed in such a way that when it reaches the edge, it appears to be make changing its mind, and it just changes direction because of a mechanical device, which is part of a sensory system of a robot, but would not, to me, make the complete definition that I'm looking for. And of course the future uh, of robots I think will be far more sophisticated and complex. That, that's pretty much a given. Now a third part of what I think would qualify for being a robot in the, in the definition I'm looking at is that the work a robot does would have to be in a sense involuntary. I, I know rob robots don't have free will. That's a, that's a big issue with this. But it means that even the choices 
or alternatives that are exercised by a robot have all been predetermined by a programmer and thus have eliminated any option of free will, um, as in contrast to human action, which, uh, though scientifically determined, which is not the same as being predetermined, is voluntary and is subject to free will or choice. And I know to a lot of people that latter statement may sound a little uh, contradictory, because uh, here I've stumbled into one of the most profound and fundamental philosophical issues facing humanity, that conflict between determinism and free will, which only, to me, goes to demonstrate how important philosophy is to every human endeavor. And uh, But that's an issue I'm going to devote some real critical time and consideration to on upcoming shows in the very near future, probably around September, the whole issue of free will uh, versus determinism. But it, it hits this issue, too, in technology. Now, here's what the article that I ran into in The, in the Economist uh, went on to say, and I, was, I found much of this very interesting. Making sure that robots are safe will be critical, says Colin Engel of iRobot, which, believe it or not, has already sold, at that time, over 2 million Roomba household vacuuming robots. But he argues that his firm's robots are, in fact, much safer than some popular toys. He says, uh, for example, he says, quote, a radio-controlled car controlled by a six-year-old is far more dangerous than a Roomba, he says. If you tread on a Roomba, it will not cause you to slip over. Instead, a rubber pad on its base grips the floor and prevents it from moving. So the first thing I'm thinking, okay, what if my foot's under the rubber pad? Is it going to latch onto my foot and stick me to the floor? And if it does, uh, who do I sue? You know, these are the kind of issues that are going to come up. But I found the statement about his robots being safer than a remote control device very interesting. I noticed that he specified that a six-year-old <laughs> was controlling the remote control device. So, well, you know, been my experience in any device in the hands of a six-year-old is, is a little more dangerous than the same device in the hands of an adult. So to say that a robot is safer than how a six-year-old might operate a machine isn't really the comforting argument that I wanted to hear. But in the realm of vacuum cleaners and toy cars, you know, point taken maybe, uh, not a big deal, but it's certainly not the kind of absolute safety that I think people will be looking, f looking at. Now, the article carries on to say that, um, quote, robot safety is likely to surface, or surface rather, in the civil courts as a matter of product liability. When the first robot carpet, carpet sweeper sucks up a baby, who will be to blame, asks John Hollam, a professor at the University of Southern Denmark in Odense. If a robot is autonomous, and get this, and capable of learning, can its designer be held responsible for all of its actions? You ever thought about that? What if a robot learns some new things and does it on its own? Does the guy who invented the robot get nailed for, for creating a robot that thinks on itself or on its own? And today, the answer to these questions is generally yes, but as robots grow in complexity, it's going to be much less clear-cut, and this is an issue that's facing scientists right now. And uh, right now, of course, no insurance company is prepared to insure robots, uh, according to Dr. Hirokia Inui, a veteran roboticist at the University of Tokyo. But that will have to change, he says. Back in uh, May 2006, Japan's Ministry of Trade and Industry announced a set of safety guidelines for home and office robots. And here are some of the things that they wanted to be sure that robots would have. They would, for example, be required to have sensors to help them avoid collisions with humans. 
They will be required to be made of soft and very light materials to minimize harm if a collision does occur, and of course to have an emergency shutoff button. And of course, even Data has a shutoff button, and I know where it is, but I'm not telling because that's a secret. So you've got to watch Star Trek if you want to know where that shutoff button is. But uh, I would have just loved to have been at this, uh, apparently they had a robot exhibition in Tokyo in the summer of 2005, and it kind of raised the eyebrows of authorities at the time when they realized that there were definite safety implications when you have you know, thousands of people not just looking at robots but mingling among them, you know, and apparently I guess they had a few incidents that uh, brought some attention to the nature of the problem. Um, but that's funny. Blay Whitby, an artificial intelligence expert at the University of Sussex in England, believes that not enough is being done to protect us from these mechanical menaces, as he calls them, but things are changing. One approach, which sounds simple enough, is to try and program robots to avoid contact with human beings altogether. But this is very much harder than it sounds, he says. Uh, getting a robot to navigate across a cluttered room is difficult enough, without having to take into account what its various limbs or appendages might bump into along the way. So regulating the behavior of robots is going to become more difficult in the future, since they will increasingly have, and here it comes again, self-learning mechanisms built into them. They will not always be behaving in predefined ways, but will learn new behavior as they go. Now, I think that last uh, statement actually is a little bit imprecise. I think robots can only act in predefined ways, but those ways may not be predictable, which is a different thing. I think that's a more precise way of stating the case. Probabilities change. I think possibilities remain the same. You won't find a vacuum-cleaning, self-learning robot suddenly getting up and flying to the moon, for example. It's not going to happen. It's going to stay a vacuum cleaner. It's not going to reinvent itself. Or, you know. And, of course, all of our video games operate on this principle. It's programmed unpredictability is part of what makes a video game interesting and exciting to those who enjoy them. Just take a quick break right now when I come back more on this issue because uh, now we get into the more interesting part dealing with the potential issues of morality and robots. But they'll be right back right after this. We're all getting older, by the way, which is a good thing because the other option sucks. And you know what I found out when I turned 33? I'm no longer to the generation the world is geared towards. All my life, everything was geared towards it. Nope, nope, now, now it's teenagers, 15, 14-year-old teenagers. And it makes sense because I'm getting older, I can't stand teenagers. Male teenagers drive me nuts. Everything about them, their music sucks. <laughs> their pants look like they crapped themselves 12 times. <laughs> and way too much access to technology, just way too much, man. I'm walking downtown a couple months ago, 1.30 a.m. on a Friday, 14-year-old little kid walks by me with a cell phone that rings, he picks it up. Oh, whoa. <laughs> when I was 14, do you know where the phone was? It was in the kitchen. <laughs> on a wall. With the cord that long. And if it ever in my house rang after 11 o'clock at night, oh God, <laughs> Nana was dead. Don't you ever stop to think? 
This is a complex game. One must look before one leaps. Samuel Butler, 1600, 1680. And look before you, ere you leap. For as you sow, ye are like to reap. Sometimes I wonder about you. If I didn't know better, I'd think some form of morality was accidentally programmed into you. Welcome back. I'm Bob Metz, and you're listening to CHRW at 94.9 FM. You can call in at 519-661-3600 or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. Don't think you can accidentally program morality into a computer. I don't think that would be an accident. But here's what the industry has been looking at, and one of the things they were looking at was, believe it or not, science fiction writer Isaac Asimov, who is known for his three laws of robotics, which in effect is another way of saying morality, a set of moral codes for robots. And here they are. And they sound very simple, straightforward, and very logical, but wait till you see the problems with them. One, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Number two, a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. In other words, you couldn't order a robot to do harm to another person. And number three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or the second law. Okay, so now, I think, you know, when I look at these three laws, I think you'll know that when robots and computers become sentient, that is, self-aware, able to choose and things like that, it'll be when they place law number three above the other two, when they place their own survival above the other two. That's pretty much the rule of life when you get to that point. And that's when we'll be calling on Magnus Robot Fighter, because who knows what kind of issues we might have to uh, deal with. Nevertheless, um, you know, Dr. Whitby, one of the experts in this, says Asimov's three laws of robotics were really a narrative device only and were never actually meant to work in the real world. Quite apart from the fact that the laws require the robot to have some sort of, uh, you know, human-like intelligence, which robots still lack, the laws themselves don't actually work very well. In fact, Asimov repeatedly knocked them down in his own robot stories, constantly showing time and time again how these seemingly watertight rules, just watertight, could produce completely unintended consequences. That's a term you hear a lot in economics and politics, unintended consequences. But interestingly, these three laws of robotics, I think, are really a code of morality. Uh, the challenge of digitally programming a computer, that would be like the computer, or like the robot's mind, right? Uh, with right and wrong, or even caring about its own existence, or having values, or placing any of those concepts into the proper context, I think is a bit of an impossibility. And, uh, of course, the question is, is it only because it's a technological impossibility, or, you know, or, you know created by our current level of technology, which we can overcome in the future, or... Is it a metaphysical impossibility? In other words, that it's impossible regardless of the level of technology you have. You know, and that's, that's really another show in and of itself. Um, might even get into that a bit in the future on that particular issue. So perhaps we can all rest a little better knowing that uh, a new robot ethics group's 
uh, are forming around the world. One of them is called the European Robotics Network at the Swedish Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, and it's chaired by a fellow named Dr. Heinrich Christensen. And he says, security, safety, and get this, and sex are, are the big concerns right now, says Dr. Christensen. And here's some of the questions that scientists are looking at as they have these symposiums and get-togethers all around the world. Uh, should robots that are strong enough or heavy enough to crush people be allowed into a home? Would you want one there, you know, falls over and kills you or crushes your dog? Is, quote, system malfunction, end quote, a justifiable defense for, say, a robot fighter plane that contravenes the Geneva Convention and mistakenly fires on innocent civilians? And get this one, and should robotic sex dolls resembling children be legally allowed? These are the kind of questions you're dealing with. And believe it or not, sex robots will be commercially available within five years, according to that article, which was already published a year ago. Might robots be dangerous to humans in less direct ways? For example, if you kick a robot dog, are you more likely to kick the real thing then? Are you going to be less respectful? I've always believed myself, you know, that uh, respect transcends just, if you're, if you're really human, if you're a human being, you respect more than humans. You also respect animals. You respect nature, and believe it or not, you respect machines and technology. If you don't take care of your car, your car won't take care of you. You've heard that before. Um, if you don't mechanically look after it, it's going to, you know, go bad on you, and it's going to cost you or hurt you. And it doesn't have a will. <laughs> it all comes from the human being, these kinds of values and the things that we're, we're talking about here. So, you know, what's in store for the future? What can we really say that is in store for the future? Uh, quote, the idea that a general pur that general purpose robots capable of learning will become widespread is wrong, suggests one expert, and that was Mr. Engel, who I referred to earlier. It is more likely he believes that robots will be relatively dumb machines designed for particular tasks rather than a humanoid robot made, he says. It's going to be some sort of heterogeneous uh, swarm of robots that will take care of the house. But in the same article, according to the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe's World Robotics Survey, can you believe the UN doing stuff like this already? In, two in 2002, the number of domestic and service robots more than tripled, nearly outstripping their industrial counterparts. By the end of 2003, there were more than 600,000 robot vacuum cleaners and lawnmowers out there. Japanese industrial firms are racing to build humanoid robots to act as domestic helpers for the elderly. And South Korea has set a goal, a goal rather, that 100% of households should have domestic robots by the year 2020. Like, that's not long away. Can you imagine that, you know? So in light of all this, it is crucial that we start to think about the safety and ethical guidelines now, says Dr. Christensen. I remember seeing on, uh, on one of those technology shows, you know, Sony and some of the other larger companies are already building these robots, and they look very human-like. Uh, they haven't put faces on them and things, but they look more like, uh, say, a guy in a space suit. And uh, when you watch them walking, they go up and down steps. These, these were major, major technological obstacles that have just recently uh, been overcome, you know, that they finally got by. And uh, as such, we are going to have a very interesting future once we meld our, our uh, computers with mechanical devices. But, um, you know, so, so the doctors, they're looking for a code of ethics, quote, for 
computers, which I think I would go perhaps a few steps further on this issue. Um, ethics, uh, morality, or right or wrong, if you want to call it that, is really a derivative branch of philosophy preceded by metaphysics and epistemology, which are two areas of philosophy that deal with the very questions raised by the definition of robot, you know, and which are sort of conspicuously avoided in most moral discussions, and that's where you get into things again, like uh, determinism versus choice and free will, consciousness, um, existence, reality, reason, you know, these things. These are issues that make a lot of people very uncomfortable. And uh, many people turn to other things to deal with the discomfort, from religion to all sorts of other belief systems. Which is why I think that one can never escape the responsibility of defining and understanding one's own philosophy in the light of these ever-expanding knowledge and information in our society. So, you know, whether specific robots or other technologies turn out to work for good or evil is completely a matter of, mor of the morality, I think, of those who create them, and only of those. Is that a discomforting thought for you? Well, that's one I will leave with you. And when we come back after this break, we'll be talking a little bit about what's been going on down at City Hall, and uh, a little talk about what all this screaming is about socialism and versus the capitalists. And we'll be back right after this. I wanted to get America online, but it's too expensive, so I got Canada online. <laughs> you got mail, eh? known a civil servant to resign on a matter of principle? I should think not. What an appalling suggestion. <laughs> the first time I fully understand that you are purely committed to means and not to ends. Well, as far as I'm concerned, Minister, and all of my colleagues, there is no difference between means and ends. If you believe that, Humphrey, you will go to hell. <laughs> Minister, I had no idea you had a theological bent. You are a moral vacuum. If you say so, Minister. It's time for your lunch appointment, Minister. You're keeping very quiet, Bernard. What would you do about all this? I would keep very quiet, Minister. And they sure weren't keeping very quiet at City Hall over a little debate they had there over planning and, and things in City Hall there. Welcome back. It's Just Right with Bob Metz. You're listening to CHRW Radio 94.9 FM, 519-661-3600 to call, or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. Uh, it's interesting. There's been a debate going on at City Hall. You've probably heard about it. I, I discussed it very briefly last week on the show, and it was about uh, Tom Gosnell, um, you know, calling a, a group of uh, people in City Hall there, you know, socialists, um, the socialist cabal, because they're opposed to uh, some development, which apparently uh, has been resolved, I understand, as of last night to this morning. I think uh, they've come to some sort of satisfactory conclusion over the issue. And interestingly enough, this, this uh, new industrial mall they're talking about has the potential, or, or I guess it's already in, in, in the planning works, that guess what they're going to be doing there? Robotics and high-tech going to be a couple of the things that are, that are going to be happening there, according to Gordon Hume, who, who uh, discussed that on uh, some of the news shows this morning. But what uh, struck me very interesting about this whole debate was all the 
crying and screaming about labels and socialists. Don't call me a socialist, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, last week, uh, August 2nd, um, Jonathan Scher in the London Free Press, a headline, Socialist Council Members Hit Back, says the headline. Quote, I'm sick of name-calling whenever so- somebody doesn't get his way, says Controller Gina Barber, a longtime NDP activist. Now, she's accusing Deputy Mayor Tom Gosnell of being part of an old boys network, quote, as opposed to the whining socialist cabal that she's been accused of being part of. She, so I guess she name-calls even when she does get her, get her way. I don't know if that's how you could interpret that. But Barber said that Gosnell should skip the rhetoric, quote, when people have what I can only describe as a hissy fit at planning committee, that doesn't help, she said. Now, for his part, uh, Gosnell is quoted as saying, well, I'm just trying to put them in a category that makes sense to me. They're about as far away from capitalism as anyone on council. And if that's name-calling, then I guess I'm guilty, but those are the facts, end quote, Gosnell said. According, again, of course, I'm reading from, from the London Free Press. Uh, Barber, along with the three other so-called killer bees, you've heard that phrase? I, I don't know, you know apparently uh, Barber, Branscombe, Bachelor, and Bryant, that's where the bees come from, and some people might say they're killers of business, too, so that's another bee you could put in there. But they claim that Gosnell's accusations are wrong, and they want London to grow in a way that's affordable to taxpayers. Now, quote, the city's planning committee opposed an industrial park on land that doesn't permit development because it's outside the city's growth boundary, said the Free Press article last week, and that was central to the issue. Now, in the other Free Press article that I very briefly referred to last week on this show, which was called Socialist Handcuff City, um, and that one was written by Joe Belanger at the Free Press, August 1st. It read, and I repeat it here again, quote, Council is divided into two camps on growth, one that says growth should be managed, and the other that says it should be market-driven. Well, to which I say, if the ism fits, wear it. I mean, wear it. I, I, like I said last week, uh, you know, if you are a socialist and you believe in the values of socialism, you should not feel insulted when someone calls you that. If you believe in the values of capitalism, which are about, you know, private property and choice. So uh, then you, you shouldn't be ashamed to be called a capitalist, although that certainly you wouldn't be in the popular camp these days. However, I look back at this article and even at the or at that quote that I just read to you, and I looked at it twice, and I said, wait, wait a minute, look what this is saying. You know, there's kind of a moral and intellectual dishonesty displayed in the way that the thing has been expressed. Uh, council divided into two camps, one that says growth should be managed, and the other one that says it should be market-driven. Well, the idea of contrasting management with market-driven forces, quote, okay, as if to imply there's no management in the private sector and that all the management only occurs in government. And interestingly enough, the word government is conspicuously missing from any statements such as this. You don't see it in there, which kind of reveals the bias or at least the understanding of the issue on the part of the writer. So the way I look at the statement is it should not read two camps on growth, one that says growth should be managed and the other that says it should be market-driven. It should say, quote, two camps on growth, one that says growth should be managed by government, and the other one that says it should be managed by the individuals who are responsible for their business, because there is management going on either way. So, 
you know, the misuse of language is a very primary means that socialism spreads. Unclear thinking leads to unclear results. Uh, you know, I was uh, looking at this. If anything, um, governments do not manage. They control. They regulate. They limit. They tax. And that's what they call management. But they don't actually manage. They're not there making sure that the revenue is coming in because you don't need to worry about things like that if you can just tax and take it from people. So, you know, when it comes right down to it, you've heard the old statement, government could not manage a hot dog stand. It's true. But it can control hot dog stands. Very easily. It can ban them. It can put them out of business, make it difficult for them to work. People, you have to understand government is always a negative force in the sense that it is a prohibitory force. And that's not to mean it's not a necessary force, but it will not create a positive. It can only stop something from happening. And that's generally, you know, almost any person who's in business, anybody who's working out there. Who, what's the first thing they say about what's in their way? And it's about... Uh, it's always the government. Biggest expense, biggest obstacle. I found that myself when I tried to build a home myself in this city. It was just unbelievable what what garbage you had to go through. And it was all garbage. It was all unnecessary, all the regulations and, and stuff. I'm sure somebody thinks they're getting something out of it. But uh, the end result was I was out a lot of money and still got my house built. But uh, holy cow, was that a story. I think I've told it in the past. But, uh, you know, another way, of course, that a government sh could... Uh, could run a hot dog stand is by violating the rights of other people by subsidizing the hot dog stand by taking the money away from them. So we have to keep in mind that government is a compulsory, not a voluntary agency, whereas business and the marketplace are voluntary mechanisms. And that's why it's silly and incorrect to say, I hear a lot of people say, oh, government should be run like a business. Well, you can't do that without making government voluntary. And guess what? If you do that, it wouldn't be government anymore. That's what makes a government a government, is the involuntary nature of it. And that's why you should have, you know, only a few laws, not a lot. Because once you have too many laws, you're back into a state of, uh, of anarchy, really. Um, you know, in philosophy, this is known as applying the law of identity. A is A. A government is a government. A business is a business. It is only on the market side of our equation where management does occur, which consists of careful, self-responsible management resources, you know, balancing them against uh, specific goals. So, you know, if you're one of those people who thinks that uh, socialism is just a meaningless label, uh, it's uh, just hang on here for a second. Here's another article that... Um, well, first of all, before we do that, let's go to the next clip then, Ira. Let's go on to uh, the one, the Dr. Walter Williams clip. And I think you might find this interesting. It'll run for about four minutes or so. And uh, this is, again, uh, Dr. Walter Williams, a bit of an American perspective. This was recorded at a dinner, I believe it was in Kentucky, about four, four or five years ago. And here he is talking about the nature of government and how government gets involved and how that relates to socialism. Here he is. Now... We Americans, we support, we even beg government to do things that if a private citizen did the identical thing, we would condemn that person as a despicable, ordinary, common, low-down thief. Let me give you an example of that. I could see a lady laying out on a grate in downtown Louisville, she needs, a, it's a dead of winter, 
She's hungry. She needs some medical attention. She needs some housing. I could walk up to any one of you with a gun and take your $200. Then having taken your $200, I could go down buy the lady some housing, get a little medical attention and some food. Would you find me guilty of a crime? Yes, you would. I'd be guilty of theft. No matter what I did with the money, no matter what good thing I did with the money, I would nonetheless be guilty of theft. Namely, taking by force that which rightfully belongs to one person and giving it to another whom it does not belong. Now, most of you can agree with that. Here's the hard part. Is there any conceptual distinction between that act, where I walked up to one of you and took your $200, and when the agent of Congress comes up to me and says, Williams, you know that $200 you made last week that you had planned to buy some Lafitte Rothschild Bordeaux wine with? <laughs> you will not do that with the money. You will give it to us. And we will go downtown and help the lady out. I assert that there is no conceptual distinction between those two acts. Now, they both involve forcibly taking that which rightfully belongs to one person and giving it to another to whom it does not belong. Now, if you press me for a distinction, I can only find a distinction that should be trivial to moral people. And that distinction is, the only distinction I see, is that the first act, where I walked up to one of you, that is illegal theft. The second act is legal theft. someone will say to me, well, Williams, it's legal. Well, for moral people, legality alone cannot be our talisman. Just because something is legal does not make it right, does not make it moral. Clearly, <laughs> clearly, ladies and gentlemen, slavery was legal. Did that make it moral? Apartheid in South Africa was legal. The Nazi extermination of Jews was legal. The Stalinist and Maoist purges were legal. But were they moral? The question, ladies and gentlemen, that we have to decide is, is there a moral basis for taking what belongs to one person and giving it to another to whom it does not belong? This also, ladies and gentlemen, this argument points out the immorality of socialism. Why is socialism evil? The reason why is very simple. Socialism is evil because it uses bad means, coercion, to achieve what are seen as good ends, helping people. And that's not the only reason. You know, that's just 
the net effect reason of socialism. Of course, socialism violates something more fundamental of that, and that's the human mind, the ability to judge for themselves what is the best action to take either in business or in, in personal discourse. Uh, welcome back. It's Bob Metz here on CHRW 94.9. You're listening to Just Right, a regular feature every Thursday between 11 and 12. Phone number to call if you like to call in is 519-661-3600 or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. Um, it was interesting, too. I was looking through the Londoner yesterday, and there was an opinion column there by Clay Powell behind the bar. And uh, he was uh, calling here in his article, calling Gosnell, quote, a nincompoop, which is, uh, you know, really very clearly defined term, isn't it, to dis- discuss ideas of this nature? And uh, he's clearly revealing his bias, uh, basically saying he's a socialist by by the negative comments he has, and he's even trying, you know, he's name calling Gosnell here. And uh, but the but the headline reads, "Quote: Socialists on City Council." Who knew? Question mark. Well, yeah, we all knew. I mean, and nowhere in his article does he deal with the word socialist. Doesn't define it doesn't attack it, doesn't say anything. He just uses it as a label to, to say, oh, no, nobody here is a socialist. What, what are you so afraid of? Uh, and the interesting thing is, what does he say? You know, he, he picks on the word cabal, okay, which, uh, you know, talks about intrigue and conspiracy, he says, and shadowy corners and insidious influence. Well, that might be an emotional reaction to that word. But, uh, and then he asks, uh, and what about the city's planning staff that carefully reviewed the situation? I guess they must be part of the socialist cabal, too. Well, I would say, yeah, they are. Um, And although he applauds the planning staff for their work and calls Gosnell and his cronies, uh, you know, he says they keep saying, um, give the developers what they want because they know what's best for the city. Again, you know, I'm amazed at this attitude that's just anti-development for the sake of being anti-development. Developers are the people that create the jobs, that create the taxes that the socialists want to take from them, that give us the opportunities, that give us jobs, that that, uh, take the risks of possible loss. Um, It's, you know, just to attack them because they're developers is not reasonable. And let's face it, if... If if, um, if if the economy is not market-driven, that is, driven by the people who want to provide us with the services. Now, of course, they can't build anywhere at any time in any place every time. But generally, municipalities should be accommodating to that, not the other way around. And that's where I think a big problem comes in uh, with planning, because when you get into urban planning... Uh, all kinds of disasters help or, or get involved. There's a, there's a fascinating uh, film or a talk, I guess, that uh, ha- happened to have on a DVD, and it was actually produced by the Ontario government. And, it, and about seven or eight years ago, might be a little longer than that now, they had some speakers in on a symposium, and the title of it was called Rethinking Suburban Sprawl. And it was all about public and private uh, developers, etc., um, talking about the issues that are involved with suburban sprawl as as per se, you know, like why do we have all these problems and why do we need cars just to get around the neighborhood if you want to get to the mall? And they showed all these interesting plans of how uh, urban planners make things difficult for people to get around. But basically the bottom line of what they were saying in there, they didn't believe in regulating for use, but they did believe in regulation for type of building. 
in size of building, that that should be relatively consistent, but there shouldn't be regulations on particular uses. And they gave a lot of examples around Canada and the United States where you saw communities, believe it or not, where residences were right in, built, like meshed right in with industrial zones, or where you had rich and poor mixed right, to, right together, where people could actually not have to get in their car and they could walk to work relatively easily if they wanted to. And unfortunately, a lot of modern planning gets away from that because it counts so much on uh, the automobile. But again, that's a separate issue from the whole labeling of uh, socialism and socialists and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's really funny, back when uh, when Bob Ray was elected, I, I can't count how many times I used to get asked, well, so what's wrong with socialism? What's wrong with it, you know? Um, most voters just weren't sure what socialism was or why they should be bothered by it. To them, socialism was just some nebulous label that politicians use to belittle one another, even though they may all you know, say and behave the same way, you know. So socialism as an understandable concept to most people has little or no relevance to the average voter in his average daily life. But it's important to realize that socialism is real, and, and it always destroys anything it touches. It just that's There's never been a socialist society that didn't go down unless it either collapsed entirely, which is, of course, going down, or changed its ways dramatically and, and you know, changed the mix of socialism. Of course, we don't live in a totally socialist society. We lived in, in a mixed economy, but the socialist mix is getting much greater, and it's even turning into a worse mix, which is, of course, another word that people are very uncomfortable with, and that's the word fascism. Fascism and socialism are essentially both about government control. The only thing that they view differently is the role of private property under socialism. In fact, here's the definition of socialism from the 20th Century Dictionary. Quote, uh, the theory or system of the ownership and operation of the means of production and distribution by society or the community rather than by private individuals with all members of the community sharing in the work and in the products. Or two, in the communist doctrine, the stage of society coming between the capitalist stage and the communist stage, in which private ownership of the means of production and distribution has been eliminated. Which kind of reminds me of, uh, uh, oh, 15, 20 years ago, I was best man at a wedding. A friend of mine got married to a young lady who was going to the University of Western, of Ontario, Western Ontario here, actually working here. They got married, and she was from Beijing, and uh, many of her family and friends came over, and I actually got to sit in. Here I am, the best man. I was the, I was the definite uh, minority there, let's put it that way. But uh, all of these folks, they could speak English fluently. Uh, I couldn't even speak one word of Chinese. But to a T, every one of them said that Canada was the ideal socialist-slash-communist country and that they thought it was funny that Canadians thought that there was anything capitalist about the country. To them, we were an ideal and in terms of socialism, not in terms of uh, freedom and capitalism and all that sort of stuff. I just thought I just thought that was a very interesting uh, observation that they made to say nothing of their fascination with our electronics here all having been from Japan and stuff like that and they see us basically uh, an Asian invasion coming here to North America. Now again getting back to this word socialism note that in the definition I read how they so carefully avoid the moral dimension of what socialism represents. Uh, you know, they just call it a theory or a system of ownership by means of, you know, that society owns things. Well, society never owns anything. It's either an individual 
or government. Those are the only two components of society in that context. So you're either going to own it privately, which would be individuals or groups of individuals uh, through corporations or partnerships or whatever you want to put together, and uh, the other option is government ownership. Now, I'm not opposed to government owning its own assets, but I don't think it should be owning the means of production. And I think government, when it owns property, it should be subject to the same laws and conditions that private property is. And uh, that's the problem with a lot of government getting involved in economics, is that it's specifically there to avoid the rules that they've created for the rest of us, and then people wonder why things go wrong. Now, I mentioned there that was a definition of socialism. I don't actually have a written definition of fascism in front of me. But the distinction is that fascism, instead of ownership and control of property and the means of production, is only really interested in the control. Because fascists are a little smarter than, than socialists in the sense that they realize, hey, we don't have to own it to control it. We can just pass laws and force people to do things, and they still own it. That way, at least they'll have some interest in the property that they still own. And, of, of course, that was the state in Germany in the 1930s under Adolf Hitler and why so many people still to this day uh, relate private property to fascism when, in fact, private property as such is completely a capitalist uh, convention, has nothing to do with fascism, fascism fur furthest away that you can possibly think of. But you can't use that word anymore today because it's so politically incorrect because it's tied into all those other issues that Hitler made us so uncomfortable about racism, you know, the Jewish question and all that. But fascism does have a clear definition and that's what it is. So uh, it's another form of government control and the way government uh, uh, is actually moving in that direction more and more. When you see more, uh, a perfect example, for example, here in London was, or in Ontario now, in Canada, is uh, whether you agree with them or not, things like smoking bylaws in the sense of uh, not allowing smokers to congregate in private property, on private premises, owned by private people, and yet you have a government that says, no, you cannot do that, even though everyone there might be consenting. Of course, the government makes up all sorts of reasons, and they say, oh, the employees aren't consenting because they're under labor legislation. Well, that's all nonsense. They could consent to, and you can create the proper kind of contracts you need. But that's a perfect example of government involving themselves in someone's business and uh, effectively having ruined it in this case. You know, they said, oh, yeah, all those restaurants and bars will survive. Well, of course, a lot of them didn't, and uh, that's already history. But what can you do when people don't understand the nature of those political systems that are being foisted upon us? So there's certainly an issue, or many issues, that I will be dealing with uh, in fut on future issues of Just Right, and that's certainly dealing with critical definitions, how they relate to right and left. And that's about all I have to say about that this week. Next week, something a little different. We're going to be talking and have a guest in. A good friend of mine uh, and uh, also happens to be uh, leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario, though we won't be talking about that. We're going to be talking about what is, and it's Paul McKeever, by the way, a lawyer from the Oshawa area. I'll introduce him more thoroughly next week. But we will be talking about, if everything goes well, what is the proper way to decide on on how governments should make decisions. Should it be, for example, by uh, by faith? Should it be by consensus? Should it be by reason? And should we be in a 
in an environment of free, free speech and all of that. I think there's a lot of issues we'll be able to touch upon. So that hopefully will be for next week, and if not, we'll get to it at some point. But I, I do have every reason to expect that we'll be doing that next week, so if you want to tune in for that, make a point of doing that then. So, till next week, join us again when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, think right, stay right, and do right. See you then. Take care. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright I'm with a girl now, right? You know what she loves to do every Sunday? Turns out, to, let's play games <laughs> play games Monopoly, everybody has Monopoly Nobody, okay, everybody's got it Nobody likes it And it's simple, why? Ready? Because this is anybody here Two and a half hours into a game of Monopoly Ready? I quit! It's four in the morning, Grandma. You win. I'm sitting on Baltic with crap. I always bought the purples. Every time, the, you know, the projects, those were mine. Out of